so we can get started. Welcome to Sunday School. We're coming to the end of our second quarter in our Answers Bible Curriculum with our theme, God is Creator and Redeemer. Now we're seeing more of the Redeemer part because we're talking about the, seven, or the second C, corruption, man's fall. Today we're going to focus more, or we're going to talk more about the fall, specifically the effects of the fall. This whole event and its related aspects is critical for us to understand. And let me say now, before I forget, if you'd like to get some more great resources on the topic of the fall and of corruption, of course there's the website, Answers, uh, website from Answers in Genesis, but I'd also recommend the sermon series from John MacArthur where he exposits Genesis 3. These are available for free MP3 download, or you can also read the written transcripts at Grace to Use website. That's gty.org. I've actually included some of the information from those sermons, as I've greatly benefited from them. I've included some of that information as part of the material for this section of the course. As we discussed last week, about 6,000 years ago, something very important happened. Adam and Eve changed their minds, the first couple, the first man and woman, they changed their minds about the goodness, holiness, and worthiness of God. And so, they disobeyed him. All of us today feel the tragic effects of this. But what precisely are the effects? What exactly do we experience today because of what they did? And are these effects reversible? Are some of them reversible? That's what we're going to examine today. Looking first briefly at God's confrontation with the sinning couple, and then looking more closely at the curses, the curses of judgment that God pronounces on the serpent, the woman, and the man. Those are the two things we're going to be examining closely today. There's also a very important apologetic question related to the effects of the fall, and that relates to death. When did death actually enter the world? Many old earth advocates, those who combine science with the Bible, assert that death was present before the fall. I'd like to respond to that assertion. I'd like to respond to it in depth, but we're not going to have time to do that today. So I'm actually going to take part of an upcoming lesson, a review lesson, that's lesson 13 of this quarter, where I'm going to address that subject more completely. I won't really talk about that today, but know that it is coming. With that said, let's now pray and go to our Creator. Oh, great God, thank you for being the Creator and the Redeemer that you desired, Lord, to show forth your glory in creating and then saving mankind. Lord, thank you that we enter into that glorious purpose, that you were so gracious as to save us, to call us out of darkness. Lord, help us to understand what you communicated in Genesis 3. Help me to be able to explain it. Lord, I pray that it would equip us for living in the world today and sharing the gospel boldly. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's start with some re review of the effects of the fall that we've already seen. Because we did see some of the effects of the fall last week. For instance, we saw that due to Adam's and Eve's choice to doubt God and disobey him, man gained an experiential knowledge of sin. Man does know what evil is, and he knows it experientially. Man's eyes were opened to his own nakedness. And therefore, man started to wear clothes. 
man was driven out of the garden and away from the tree of life. And man witnessed the first proclamation of the gospel in God providing a covering for them out of animal skins. Now there's more proclamation of the gospel and the curse, as we saw a little bit last week, the curse and the serpent. We'll see um, even more how that plays out as part of today's lesson. So man is gaining, or these are all effects of the fall, but there's more. And I want to show that to you by looking first at the confrontation in the garden. This is Genesis 3, verses 8 to 13. So if you haven't done so already, open your Bibles to that section. We're going to read those verses and then briefly talk about them. We won't spend as much time on this part as we will on the curses. Let's listen to verses 8 to 13, and as you listen, see if you can pick out what are some other changes to man or to the world as a result of the fall. Okay, here's verse 8. This is right after they realized their nakedness and made coverings for their, made coverings for themselves. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and so I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. All right, we'll just stop right there. So just from hearing that, how else has humanity changed? What's another way? Yeah, Craig. That's one big part, right? We see blame. We see them blaming others. What else? Yeah, Roy. Right. I think those are the two main parts that we see here. They hide from God, and they also blame others for their sin. They blame others for their wrongdoing. So, Man does hide from God, but notice it's both physical and spiritual hiding. Adam's answer to God's question in verse 10 is very curious. If someone were to ask you where you were, how would you answer? I'm right here. I'm over here. But he doesn't want to show himself to God, right? Why not? He's ashamed of his sin. He knows that he's sinned. He doesn't want to expose himself to God's holiness. So he doesn't want to actually tell God where he is or show himself to God, but he needs an explanation. Why won't you come out, Adam? But notice, he doesn't say, oh, it's because I sinned against you. It's what? I'm naked. I just don't want to come out because I'm a little embarrassed that I'm naked. Adam doesn't mention the real issue. It's his sin. He wants to avoid that issue physically wants to get away from God, but he also wants to avoid confronting his sin before God. And even when God specifically points it out to Adam, he says, you're naked? Oh, that means you must have eaten from the tree, right? Did you eat from the tree? There's no other way you can know you're naked. 
Adam still avoids confronting his guilt by, as we also said, shifting the blame. And this is another way that we see that man changes. Man is unable to truly confess his own evil, instead choosing to blame other people, blame creation. Whom does the woman blame? Serpent. It was a serpent's fault, not my fault. He made me believe something that wasn't true. I don't deserve to be punished. It's really the serpent's fault. Whom does the man blame? He blames the woman and God. The man is even more brazen than the woman. And it's astounding because he says, the woman whom you gave to be with me. Now this little phrase is not accidentally included. It's not as if Adam needed to remind God which woman he's talking about. There's an implication to that included detail. The reason, this would be Adam's thinking, the reason I ate from the tree is not due to any fault within myself. It's actually your fault, God. You gave me a flawed woman who tricked me into eating the fruit. I never asked for her. You just gave her to him. You just gave her to me. And now look what she made me do. You can't blame me, God. It's really your fault. You gave me this woman. So he blames, man blames other people for his sin. He blames creation. He also blames God. Now because of this blame shifting, what is, notice, what is noticeably absent from their responses? There's no confession of their sin and no repentance. There's no, oh God, we did the exact thing you told us not to do. We disobeyed you, God. We doubted your goodness. We stopped trusting you. We did evil. And now we're filled with this terrible guilt and shame. Please help us, God. You made the world good. You've always been kind and generous to us. Isn't there anything that you can do for us now? There's none of that. Instead, they fear and hide from the only one that can help them. And when God confronts them, they blame him, and they blame his good creation. Really, connected to this thought, we should ask, well, why does God ask questions here? Why does he ask these questions to Adam? Doesn't he know where he is? Doesn't he know what Adam's done? Why is God asking these questions? Yes. It has to be, right? We know that God is omniscient. There's no need for him to ask these questions. But it points them to their sin. And it should bring them, cause them to repent. It should cause them to confess what they've actually done. Notice that God does not do this with the serpent. He doesn't go to the serpent, what is it that you've done? I think there's a difference there. There's no need to search for repentance in the, ser the serpent. But even when God himself directs Adam and Eve toward confession and repentance, they will not own up to their sin. And isn't this the same today? We hear these kind of explanations all the time. It's not my fault that I said those hateful words. She provoked me. She made me say it. It's not my fault that I did wrong. It's because of the way my parents raised me. They abused me as a child. That's why I do what I do. It's not my fault I committed this crime. It's because of my social economic circumstances. It's not my fault I have this evil habit. It's just the way my brain is wired. It's in my DNA. God, you made me like this. 
how dare you charge me with sin when you created me this way or caused me to become this way? Or someone might say, also, if he's more theologically informed, the reason I do this is because of Adam and Eve. It's their fault. Or, God, this is all because of your choice in salvation. You elect whom you want to elect. If you want to save me, you'll save me. It's not my fault. If I am not saved, it's yours. If you damn me, God, it's all your fault. Now, I'm not saying that things like how you were raised or what other people do, that they don't affect our choices. They do. However, I want to affirm what the Bible clearly says again and again, that each of us is responsible for our own choices and that we all must give an account for our sin and lack of repentance. Others, yes, they will be held accountable for what they did to us, how they affected us, but we ourselves also must own up to our sin, our own sinful choices. But sinful man does not accept this. Instead of acknowledging his evil words and his actions to be wrong, he completely shifts the blame to others. He avoids it. He evades it. And when he shifts the blame, he implicitly, because God is in control of the world and all people in the world, man implicitly shifts the blame to God. God, you made me do evil. It was impossible for me to succeed. You couldn't let me do it. Therefore, I don't deserve to be punished. God, however, does no such thing. This complaint of man is simply a stubborn, blasphemous rebellion against the God who's actually good. In fact, theologians have a term for this heart condition, this heart condition of man that will not repent or even confess guilt. What's the term? He cannot repent. He cannot acknowledge his sin. He is totally bound to his sin. Yeah, depravity, right? This is just that doctrine of sovereign grace. That is the depravity of man, the total depravity, the radical corruption of man. Not only is everything that he does sin, but he can do nothing else. He can't even bring himself to repent. He loves his sin too much. He is bound to his sin too much. He must serve it. There's no way he can confess or repent. We see that on display here right in the garden. A man has died spiritually. He's so gripped by his sin that he can no longer see God as helper or savior, but only as a judge to be avoided and blamed. This is, I think, a clear picture of how horrible sin is. Not only does it bring shame, guilt, and punishment, but it makes you impossible to seek out the only remedy, which is God. Since this is the case, who can be saved? If this is what sin does to a person, makes them unable to go after God, who can be saved? No one, except for the ones that God draws by himself. This is why we revel in sovereign electing grace. God takes the spiritually dead and makes them alive. He opens their eyes so that they can believe, so that they do believe in the remedy of Jesus. We're actually going to see election a little bit later on in this passage in a surprising way. But certainly in the confrontation, we see the total depravity of man, his inability to repent. Now let's turn our attention to the curses. 
Look down at the next set of verses, starting in verse 14. These are the pronouncements of righteous judgment on the first rebellious couple. And we're going to see many more effects of the fall that are relevant for us today. Follow along with me, starting in verse 14, and we'll read the 19. After mankind, the first man and woman, refused to repent, God said to the serpent, verse 14, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle, and more than every beast of the field, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Then to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have, not, and, and have eaten from the tree from which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread, till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. All right, let's make some observations on these verses. What three pronouncements does God make to the serpent? Let's summarize. What are the three things that God pronounces on the serpent? Give me one. Yeah, Daniel. That's right. He's going to eat dust connected with that, crawl on his belly. So that's the first part. The serpent's going to crawl on his belly. What else? That's interesting. I never thought about that before. Steve, just repeat your comment. They were talking about, Adam and Eve talked about what they ate. They ate of the tree of the fruit. And God is telling the serpent specifically, this is what you're going to eat. I think there might be a connection there, though I'm going to make an argument about that phrase, you will eat dust. And we'll come back to that a little bit later. So we do see the serpent is going to crawl on his belly and eat dust. What else is he told? He is cursed. And generally, that's what all of these are. But let's see if we can say more specifically what those curses contain. Yes, Sue. Yeah. So he says, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman and between her seed and your seed. And we should note, where does that enmity come from? Who puts it there? God does. God says he will put the enmity there. One other thing. Related to the woman's seed? Steve. That's true. Or it's a little bit surprising to us, perhaps, that he's talking about the seed of the woman here rather than the seed of the man. He says, from her seed, this is going to happen. And what exactly, what's that, the last thing told to the serpent about the woman's seed? Not only will there be enmity between these two types of seed, but, yeah, Magda. 
right? So there's the proclamation that one from the woman's seed will crush the head of the serpent, bruise his head, and that seed will only endure a bruised heel. So we see those three pronouncements. We'll talk more about them later. What about the woman? What curses are given to the woman? What about childbirth, Dan? All right, so she will have great pain because of children. Notice the phrase, greatly multiply. What does it say, greatly multiply? I think I wrote it down the wrong way. Okay, verse 16. Okay, I will greatly multiply, yes. This phrase is similar to one we saw earlier. Remember, surely die. You will surely die when you eat from the fruit. It's an instance where the same Hebrew word is used twice in a row. So there, surely die is literally, dying, you shall die. Here, it's the word great and great. So it means something like, greatly will I cause to become great. Or causing to become great, I will make great. This word can refer to multiplying or increasing something already present, but does not always mean that. Just note that. Also, if you're using an NIV or New King James version of this passage, you may notice a significant difference in the beginning of verse 16. It is not translated, multiply your pain in childbirth, but what? Any of you have that translation? It does say conception, yes, but there's another significant difference. Instead of childbirth, it says conception. Um, bearing children. I'm actually not focusing on the word childbirth or conception or bearing children. It's actually a preposition. It's the preposition in. The New American Standard and the ESV will say multiply your chain multiply your pain in childbirth. These other translations will say, multiply your pain and your childbirths. Multiply your pain and your conceptions. This is because in the original Hebrew, it actually is the word and, not the word in. Furthermore, notice the phrase bring forth a little bit further down. In pain, you will bring forth children. This is that great Hebrew word, yalad, that we mentioned earlier in the course, which means to beget, to bring forth, or to bring up. So one of the pronouncements of the woman is that she's going to have great pain because of her children. We'll say more about that a little bit later, but what's the other pronouncement to her? That's right. The second part, just as Khalif said, she will have a desire for her husband, but he will rule over her. It's a little bit of an odd phrase, but there's a great way, or there's a, there's a way that we can understand that that makes a lot of sense. We'll come back to that when we start interpreting. Finally, let's hit the man. What three pronouncements does God make to the man as curses? What's one thing? There is his death. He doesn't actually say the phrase, you will surely die here, but he does say you will return to dust, which is another way to talk about death, just as you were saying, Carol. Man is going to die. What else? Well, that's part of the reason that the curses are coming to him. That's right, Denise. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, he specifically points out how man sinned, but what, what were the other results? He will die. He's going to toil. He's going to have to work. And there are new impediments to his work. The ground is now cursed. And it brings up thorns and weeds. 
So man's going to have to toil to get his food from the ground. He'll still get food, but he's going to have to work hard for it. He's going to have to do painful work, tedious work, constant work, and then he will die. He will return to dust. Now let's examine more closely what these curses mean. Let's move to the interpretation step. Back to the serpent. The serpent is said to be cursed specially out of all animals, and that it will go in its belly all its, all its life. Does this mean that the serpent did not crawl on its belly before? I would say yes. I'll give you two reasons. First, all the other curses in this passage describe a new state or new situation. The pain for women related to children is new. The pain for man and related to his work is new. Thorns are new. Death is new. There's no reason, then, to think that this statement to the serpent about how he will move is not new. Everything else is new. Why would this break that pattern? Second of all, earlier in this chapter, the serpent is compared to the beast of the field and the cattle. Conspicuously, nowhere in this chapter is the serpent compared to what other group of land animals? Remember in Genesis 1, when God created the land animals, you had the cattle, you had the beast, the field, and then one other category. The crawling things, the creeping things. Very good. This will lead us to think that the serpent is being compared to these other creatures, that it's similar to them. It's either part of or similar to these categories, either a beast of the field or cattle. Otherwise, why would you make a comparison? That wouldn't make sense. According to Esword, that's the electronic resource that, that gives you access to the original Hebrew words. The Hebrew word for crawling thing or creeping thing in Genesis 1.25 can actually be translated reptile or anything that rapidly moves across the ground. It definitely sounds like a snake, doesn't it? A snake would fit into the category of crawling things. It definitely creeps across the ground and certainly is a reptile. So then, the suggestion from the text is that snakes were not considered part of that group at first. The crawling things, the creeping things, were actually considered one of the beasts of the field. Hence the, comparison that we, the comparisons we see in chapter 3. Due to the curse, however, the snake is made to crawl in its belly. It is made to be a creeping thing. So for both these reasons, I would argue that the snake did indeed change form. It did not crawl in its belly before, but now it will. Follow-up question, what then did the snake look like before? How many legs did it have? How tall was it? Guess what my answer is to that question. We don't know, and there's no way to know. Right, it, yeah, kind of like a reverse evolution, indeed. Maybe it was a quadruped like other cattle or beasts of the field, but we can't say for sure. All we know is that it changed. Now let's come back to that idea of eating dust. God says the serpent will eat dust. Now, no serpent, no snake actually eats dust not literally true. So what does this phrase mean? God says you'll crawl on your belly and you'll eat dust. Yeah, Diane. Exactly. It's just about his posture. It's just about where his face is. He's not actually eating dust. He's just going to be that close to the ground. It's as if he were eating dust. It's kind of like our more modern phrase, bite the dust. That phrase does not literally mean that a person sinks his teeth into the dirt. What does it mean? 
If someone bites the dust, yeah, it can mean humiliation. Usually it means debt. <laughs> yeah. If, you, if someone bites the dust, you no, know, people also use it metaphorically to mean defeat. It's not actually talking about you biting the ground. It's as if you bit the ground because you fell down, because you were defeated or because you died. So this first part of the curse, then, this crawling on your belly and eating dust, very vividly portrays a new lowness to the serpent. Its posture is very low. It will creep. Its face will always be in the dirt. But we should ask, so what? Does the first snake, or do today's snakes, really care about that? No, they don't. Actual snakes don't have that kind of self-awareness. They don't appreciate the difference between walking, slithering, rolling, or whatever. They just move in whatever way they need to, whatever way they can. Moreover, the literal serpent in the garden didn't actually do anything. It was the one talking through him that was guilty of evil. Satan is the villain, not the created snake. As John MacArthur says in his sermons, the snake was just a tool. So then, why punish it? Why curse it? If it was really Satan doing the evil, why punish the tool? a tool that's not capable of moral or immoral action and will not know the difference between four legs and no legs? I think the answer is in the posture. Consider this verse from Micah 7.17. You don't have to turn there, but I'll read it to you. Micah 7.17, in context, this is God talking to Israel about Israel's enemies after God restores the nation of Israel and exalts it. So God says, I'm going to restore you, Israel. I'm going to make you supreme. And here's what I have to say about your enemies at that time. Here's Micah 7, 17. They will lick the dust like a serpent, like reptiles of the earth. They will come trembling out of their fortresses. To the Lord our God they will come in dread, and they will be afraid before you. You see what God's doing in this passage in Micah, God says Israel's enemies will have posture, postures like the serpent, like the serpent's posture. Meaning what? How will these enemies of Israel act? If they approach God, and if they approach the Israelites, like serpents who lick the dust, what does that mean? What emotions are these enemies feeling? Yeah, there's some reverence, some fear. Notice the second part of the verse in Micah 7:17. They will come trembling out of their fortresses. They will come in dread. They will be afraid before you. Licking the dust, this posture, this serpent's posture is used as, a, as an analogy by God to say these enemies will come in fear, they will come in submission, they will come in defeat. The snake's posture is one of lowliness. Its face is constantly in the dust. So why would God make this change to the serpent after the fall? Especially if it's not the actual animal who can comprehend that change.
Actually, that's a great point. I was going to say something about that a little bit later on, but yeah, certainly the concept of animals suffering because of man is clear in the Bible. That the whole world is, is cursed because of us. We'll say more about that later on. But I would say that something more specific is happening here with the serpent. The, the other parts of this curse, they don't really relate to the actual animal. They relate to the one who's speaking through the animal, to Satan. And so I would argue this whole thing about the serpent's posture is actually a message to and about the devil. Satan uses the serpent as a tool in an effort to corrupt mankind, to acquire glory for himself, and to frustrate God. But God chooses to turn the tool into a symbol of Satan's own defeat, Satan's own downfall. Because notice the context. Last week, God gives the promise to, to the serpent about the seed of the woman, who will crush the serpent's head. But God there does not mean the literal serpent, but the one who used the serpent, the devil. So, in this triumphant curse, this is what I argue God is doing. God is making abundantly clear that Satan has accomplished no victory in the fall of man. That Satan's doom is just as sure as it's ever been. And the animal, the snake, that which the Satan had used is going to be a symbol of that. It will be in the dust. It will be completely low. It will have that defeated posture. You thought you had used this tool to accomplish victory against God? No, because look, the tool shows total submission, total defeat, just as you will. So every time an Israelite saw a snake slithering across the ground, it was meant to be a reminder of the fall. Meant to be a reminder indeed of the deception and how he fell, but also a reminder of God's promise. That God said one day the serpent would be crushed. Not the literal serpent, but the figurative serpent. The one who is using the serpent. God is going to bring him down to the dust. It will crush his head through the seed of the woman, who, as we mentioned, is the God-man. It's Jesus. So this whole thing about the posture, this whole thing about changing the form, it's actually a message to the serpent, or a message to Satan of his own downfall. And really, this whole concept continues to the rest of the curse. God says he will place enmity between the woman and the snake, and between the seed of the woman and the seed of the snake. I think this is along the same lines. We might at first think that this promise about enmity is about people being afraid of snakes, or about snakes being afraid of humans. But this is true of many animals. This would hardly be a unique curse to the snake. Moreover, some people really like snakes. I don't know how, but they do. So I would argue this has to be about something else. When he says enmity between the woman and the serpent, and the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, it's got to be about something else. We've already seen that, or as I said, the latter part of the description about the seed has to do with Satan. So what about Satan's seed? Or what about the serpent's seed? If this is Satan, what about his seed? Well, Satan doesn't procreate. But he is said to have a seed. He is said to have children. In the New Testament, we have descriptions about those who have the devil as their father. Who are those people? They're unbelievers. The wicked ones. They belong to the seed of the devil. They are his children. And they do what he does. So then, 
God is promising here two kinds of seed. There will be a group that belongs to the serpent, not the little serpent, the figurative serpent, to Satan, and they will be like him. And then there's another group, a group that comes from Eve. And what is the relationship between these two groups, again, according to the verse? Enmity, hostility, could even be translated hatred. What group of people, then, would experience conflict with Satan's brood of wicked ones? Believers, right? Righteous ones, Christians, those who actually follow after God. And as we noted, let's notice again, the enmity does not arise all by itself. God specifically places it there. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between her seed and your seed. So put it all together. Besides promising a future Messiah to crush the serpent, God is also promising something about Eve and her seed. They will be at odds with the devil and her seed. Meaning, I think this is the only place where we can take it, God will save Eve and he will produce a saved seed from her. Therefore, she and that seed from her will be at odds with the devil and his seed. In other words, this is sovereign election. This is God promising to the serpent the most utter defeat. You may think you have corrupted and destroyed mankind, that they all now belong to you, that they now all will serve you. But let me tell you, not only will your tool have the posture of defeat, but I will cause Eve, the very one you deceived, and many from among her physical seed to repent. I will cause them to come back to me. She and them, therefore, will hate you. They will be at odds with you and with all of those who are your children. God said, I will cause this to happen. And there's nothing that you can do, Satan, to stop me. In fact, one righteous descendant from Eve will not only war against you, he will lay the crushing blow. He is my son will come from the very line that you think you have conquered. He will put on human flesh, and you will be able to do nothing against him except give him a minor bruise. This is your doom, O deceiver. I think that's what we're seeing here with the curse and the serpent. This is not really about the literal serpent. It's all about the one who is using him. God is saying, behold your defeat. that is the curse on the snake. Pretty triumphant curse, I would argue. But we also have curses to the woman and the man. These don't have quite as much triumph for us, but we'll say more about um, whether these curses are permanent later on. Let's move to the woman, the curse on the woman. She said that she will have greatly multiplied pain in childbirth or in raising children. Now, we should radically acknowledge that this verse, based on what I told you about the Hebrew word, does not mean that God is increasing pain she already has. No, the word doesn't need to mean that. God is simply saying her pain connected with having children is going to be extremely great. But to what pain is God referring? You might say, uh, isn't that obvious? The most obvious answer would be labor pain. 
God actually uses that as a metaphor many times in the Bible for extreme pain, extreme suffering. It is one of the most painful ordeals a woman can experience to labor with child. Also related is the unique pain of the woman's monthly cycle. This perhaps is connected to the, to the promise of God of greatly increasing the woman's conceptions. There's certainly physical pain involved in the woman's reproductive system. However, is it just physical pain? Is it just physical pain that the woman endures? We noted that in verse 18, that it's not, or that it is literally in the Hebrew, pain and childbirth, not pain in childbirth. Moreover, the second half of verse 18 refers more broadly to the mothering experience. In pain, you will bring forth children. You will beget children. You will bring up children. Surely the pain of mothering does go beyond the physical, doesn't it? Mothers, as their primary caregivers to children, must endure much sorrow, pain, and anxiety. This is the way John MacArthur takes this statement, and I, and I, think, it's, I think it's right. I'm, of course, not a mother, or a parent for that matter, but I can imagine the pain and the questions and the anxieties that a mother feels. Why can't I figure out what's making him cry? What if he chokes on this piece of food? Why doesn't she try so why doesn't she try harder in school? Why is he so rebellious? Why does she insist on dating the worst people? How could he have spoken so disrespectfully to me? Why doesn't she call me anymore? Why doesn't she tell me how her life is going on? How could my son end up in jail? Why does God allow a child to die before her mother? They're all pains, right? They're all sorrows of mothering. Well, thinking about the pain of motherhood, I also think of the thing that Simeon says to Mary, right? Luke, 20, or Luke 2, verse 34 to 35, when Mary and Joseph bring him into the temple, Simeon says some things about Christ, but then he says to Mary, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel, and for a sign to be opposed. And a sword will pierce even your own soul. The end of thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. In pain, women will bring forth children. And I would argue that this pain does go beyond the physical. There's so many sorrows, so many pains, so many frustrations involved with mothering. Not just while a child is home, but even when the child grows up and leaves. And this pain that women experience, that mothers will experience, will not just happen once, it will happen again and again and again because God has multiplied conceptions for the woman. It will be a constant source of pain and sorrow. Now, is motherhood all pain and sorrow? No, of course not. But this is a great curse. Why? Because it's the price of sin. It is the horribleness of sin that such a horrible curse would be the punishment. It would also be a continual reminder to Eve and to all women, to all mothers, even if you're not a mother, it's still a reminder. It's a reminder of what happened in the garden and of man's need for redemption. This is part of the curse on the woman. Side note, I don't know if any of you are thinking this, but I, I did want to mention it. It's not morally wrong for a woman to use anesthetic during labor. God didn't say, don't you dare run away from part of this curse. If that were the case, then man would certainly not be allowed to use any form of machinery on his farming. Anything that would make farming a little bit easier. 
So this is the first part of the curse on the woman. But there's a second part. There's more, unfortunately. God says her desire will be for her husband, yet he will rule over you. Or he will rule over her. Now, what is that about? This may sound like that God is saying that a woman will love her husband or still feel the need to seek out a husband even when he rules over her. However, there's a, another place in the Bible where the same phrasing is used, and that will help us understand what God is really talking about here. Look over at Genesis chapter 4. Just maybe the next page, or maybe on the same set of pages in your Bible. Genesis 4, verses 6 to 7, God says something to Cain. In this moment, Cain is feeling depression and jealousy over Abel's accepted sacrifice, accepted sacrifice and Cain's rejected sacrifice. And God says this to Cain, verse 6. Why are you angry? And why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. And its desire is for you, but you must master it. Did you notice the similar sounding phrase in verse 7? It uses the same Hebrew words. Its desire is for you, but you must master it or rule it. This is what God says to Cain. In what sense does sin desire Cain? Does it want to love him? No, clearly not. In what sense does sin desire Cain? To rule him. That's right, Bill. It desires to rule him. It desires to control him. He says, but you must rule it. You must not submit to it. You must rule that sin, that sinful temptation. So then what is God pronouncing as a curse on the woman in the second part to Eve? She will desire to rule over her husband. That's the curse. She will desire to rule over her husband, but he will actually rule her. This is a curse on marriage. The whole family is being cursed here. Her experience with children is going to be filled with pain and sorrow, but also her experience with her husband. A woman will desire, will tend to desire to control her husband and be independent of him, while the man will tend to desire to be sinful in his rule, dominating his wife, even abusing her. And this too plays out all over today, doesn't it? On the one hand, you have the feminist movement that seeks to liberate women from being submissive to husbands and to men in general, but unfortunately it makes women more vulnerable to men and to their husbands more than ever. On the other hand, in America and around the world, men continue to abuse their wives and women in general. And this is found in the most modern nation states to the most backward tribes. The marriage paradigm that God originally designed was broken in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned, just as God said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife. That brokenness is now going to be reflected in all marriages going forward. There will be many misunderstandings, fights, domestic abuse cases, divorces, and murders around the world. Because woman will not want to submit to her husband, and man, the husband, will not want to, I'm sorry, wives will not want to submit to their husbands, and husbands will want to abuse their wives and how they lead. So this, too, is a horrifying curse. And we might ask, well, why? Why are you giving these curses to Eve? Why don't you tell this to Adam? God could have 
curse anything related to women, but why raising children in her relationship with her husband? What would you say? That is her primary sphere. Right? You say it was her primary purpose in being created. Uh, just to say that a little bit differently. This is the woman's primary sphere. It is her main source of fulfillment. She was created as a helper. She was created as a mother. And as a wife to Adam. And now, it's going to be where the curse hits most relevantly. It hits a woman in the most relevant sphere. The home and the family. And we're going to see the same thing with Adam's curse. Adam's curse hits him in his most relevant sphere. Of course, he's going to suffer from the same marriage curse that Eve does. But when God speaks specifically to Adam, he speaks to Adam about, I forgot to put those up here, the woman will seek independence from or control of her husband, and the husband will use his leadership role to dominate his wife. But when we come to Adam, his curse is on his work. We've covered some of this information in a separate lesson, but as we said, God's pronouncement on man pronouncement on man is that his work would become hard, become toilsome, and it would be very tedious. Rather than satisfying himself in the food that God provided him, man would have to work painfully and frustratingly for his food. He would become a farmer, dealing now with thorns and weeds, plants that, as we saw in a previous lesson, did, that did not exist before this fall, that did not exist before sin. They would flourish as God changed the watering system of the earth from underground nourishment to rain. And just as the pain of raising a family would be a constant reminder to the woman all her days of the fall, so will the pain of man and his work be a constant reminder to him of the fall. He will toil until he dies. Man will return to the ground from which he was made. Not only will he will die, not only will he die, but so will his wife, and so will all his descendants. This is when death enters the whole world. As Francisco mentioned, even though the animals did not sin, even though the ground took no part in Adam's rebellion, all of it falls under a curse. Because its ruler, its steward, was cursed. Just as Romans 5 and 8 say, Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. And then Romans 8, 20 to 22. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. So God subjects all of creation to futility because of man's sin. The curse on man is going to apply to all of creation. Curses are severe, and you and I feel their effects every day. But this is the price of sin. This is the great horror of sin. God was not unjust in giving any of these curses. This was a just punishment for man's distrust and rebellion against God. They would serve reminders of the fall, but as we mentioned, a reminder of the gospel. They would serve an important purpose, an important purpose remind people as they see the decaying creation, as they see themselves decaying, as they see their relationships decaying with their children and one another, that they need to be set free 
from this curse. They need to be set free from the, their bondage to it. And the great thing is, as I alluded to earlier, these curses were not designed to last forever. These curses were not permanent. One day, God specifically promises to bring his people, those of the seed of the woman that he calls out, to a world free from this curse, free from death, free from crying, free from pain. I won't read the whole passage to you, but Revelation 22 and Revelation 21 really bear this out. Revelation 22.3 says specifically, there will no longer be any curse in the new Jerusalem. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. God created the universe very good, but it became cursed due to man's rebellion. One day that curse will be lifted, a perfect world will be restored, yet this restoration will actually be an upgrade. It will be even more perfect, because man is not simply innocent, but he is redeemed by his love, by his Savior, by God, by Christ. This is the future for us. This is the future for us who are in Christ. We're going to be free from the curse. What about now? Is there a way to be free from the curse now? Do we still suffer under the curses given to Adam and Eve? We do. Yet, God redeems it. God redeems even the curse now for us as believers. None of our suffering, due to our work, due to our husbands, our wives, due to our children, none of it is in vain. God promises that all of it actually works for our good. We can rejoice that God makes all of our suffering purposeful. It's for our good, and it brings glory to God. Mothers take joy in the fact that they are being used by God to train up the next generation. And they entrust all their efforts to him. They need not suffer the anxieties of the curse about what will happen to my son, what about this, what about that. They know that Christ is in control. Husbands do their work heartily as to the Lord. They do not worry about what their families will wear or what they will eat, the things that constantly burden most people in the world. Husbands know that the good and heavenly Father will provide. Marriage, too, is redeemed in Christ. By looking to Christ in the church, the man learns to lead with love and the woman to joyfully submit to help her husband. And death, the great curse, the great enemy of man, is made null by the work of Christ on the cross. The sting of death is removed. There's no need to fear going to the dust. Christians learn to say with Paul, to live is Christ, to die is gain. The curse is redeemed, even though we experience it in a certain way. It is redeemed for Christians. We no longer suffer, or we no longer are under its curse. Not really. Christ redeems us from it. In summary, the fall has affected the world in a multitude of ways. We've seen a number of those. Mothering was affected. Marriage was affected. Work was affected. All the animals and plants were affected. Serpent was affected. Yet all these curses are redeemed in Christ. May God grant us the grace and the boldness to tell others about this Christ so that we, or so that they, the people we tell, will no longer endure the curse, needlessly endure the curse, but be set free from the curse of sin. Both now
now and forever. We need to tell them. One last thought. One last thought as we transition to our memory verse. Remember our memory verse of Genesis 2, 16 and 17. That's all about the command that God gave to Adam and Eve. Some have objected that God lied about his promise to Adam and Eve that they would die the day they ate of the fruit. God, you went back on what you said. They didn't die when they ate the fruit. Did God mislead them? Did God lie? No, of course God can't lie. He can't be deceptive. And there's actually a pretty simple explanation to that objection, to that seeming inconsistency. God said, the day you eat, on the day you eat of it, you will surely die. But some things to note. On the day, the phrase bayom in Hebrew, we've already seen it. It's an idiomatic expression. That means when. It need not refer to the specific day, the literal day. It's not used that way in Genesis 2.4. Remember that phrase? It says, this is the account of the, gener or the generations of the earth on the day when the Lord God created them. It isn't talking about the literal day there. We're just saying when. When God created them. Also, surely die. You shall surely die. Remember in Hebrew, as we mentioned, it literally means dying you shall die. Hebrew interpreters have noted that this can indicate a gradual process. You will start dying until you totally die. If God wanted to indicate a sudden death, they argue, he would have just used the word die, and not die, die, or dying you shall die. The most convincing support, however, I think is the, the last thing I have on here, is that the same phrase, the same phrasing is used in another part of the Bible. Actually, we're seeing that a lot today, right? Comparing the Bible to other parts of the Bible. 1 Kings 2.37, we have the same kind of warning given by a king, King Solomon. King Solomon warns Shimei, a traitor, I have the verse up there, that he must not leave Jerusalem anymore, otherwise he's going to die. Specifically, here are Solomon's words. For on the day you go out and cross over the book Kidron, you will know for certain that you shall surely die. Your blood will be on your own head. Same words, on the day, surely die. What follows, though, in this chapter is a description of how Shimei violates this restriction but does not die right away. When he later returns to Jerusalem, Solomon confronts him and then puts him to death. So, did Solomon lie to Shimei? Did Solomon mean that the moment he crossed over that brook, he would die, or on that very specific day? No. What did Solomon mean? That's right. Eventually it was going to happen. As soon as you went over that bridge, you were marked for death. Your death sentence was upon you. So it was with Adam and Eve. God warned them that they were marked for death as soon as they chose to eat from the uh, tree of knowledge of good and evil. And this is exactly what God brought to pass. So there's no need to say that God was misleading or that God lied. Even though God originally promised this death sentence, though, was always in God's mind to cause Adam and Eve to repent and then begin that new seed, that gospel seed, that will ultimately bring about Christ. That's it for today's lesson. Let's close by reading the memory verse together. I know maybe you have some questions or some comments about the lesson. Please come see me afterwards. Next week we talk about Cain and Abel. But then today, let's read, I think a typo there, 2, 16 to 17. Let's read our memory verse. Then the Lord God took the man and 
put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Hopefully we now have even better understanding of that memory verse. Let's close in prayer. Holy God, we thank you. We thank you that you are so triumphant. You are so victorious. Even these horrible curses, God, on man and woman, on husband and wife, on all of humanity, God. You redeem. They don't really have power over us anymore because of your son. Lord, thank you that even in the beginning of the world, you gave this promise. You gave this gospel promise that you would crush the serpent, that his victory was, or that his defeat was totally assured. And you've given, you've given us so many reminders of your grace and of the horribleness of sin in the curses that we see today. Even the snake, God, and all the other pains we experience, they remind us of the horribleness of sin. And God, we want other people to be set free from the horribleness of sin and from your judgment. So God, give us the boldness. Help us to be able to speak with them, show them from the Bible what is true. I pray that you would bless the rest of this service today, that you would persuade us more of how great you are and how horrible sin is. In Jesus' name.